Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is brought to you from Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school, Crawford School of Public Policy. If you want to deepen your knowledge on policy or get into a policy-facing role, you should go check out our postgraduate degrees and short courses at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. We've got a fantastic range of courses available for you there. Now, alongside me in the pod cupboard today is none other than Sharon Bessel. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Martin. Always good to be in the cupboard. It's always great to have you in the cupboard. Sharon, of course, is a professor here at Crawford School. She's also the editor of the Poverty in Focus section on Policy Forum, and she's also the ANU lead on the amazing Individual Deprivation Measure Project. So, Sharon, what has caught your eye in the wide world of policy this week? Well, there's been a lot going on this week, um, and I think all eyes have been on that amazing young woman, Greta Thunberg, as she gave that that incredibly powerful speech. Yeah, it was um, a fantastic speech, wasn't it? It was phenomenal, wasn't it? Um, but there are a few things that caught my eye, and I wanted to kind of bring them together, and they don't immediately look as though they should come together. So I've been watching um, the dis- discussions unfold around the parliamentary inquiry into domestic violence in Australia, which has been announced. I referred to this on a previous podcast Um Pauline Hansen is a co-chair of that inquiry um, and she has come into it saying that uh, she feels that um, really the system treats women too well um, and wants to uh, really reframe the way in which we think about domestic violence in Australia, which I think is incredibly worrying. There, were, there was also a very good discussion of that on uh, this week's Democracy Sausage podcast. So if listeners haven't listened to that already, I would uh, definitely re- recommend checking it out. So sorry, Sharon, I interrupted your flight. You had three things to go through. <laughs> you Let, did. Let's, but, let's hear point number two. But that democracy sausage is well worth listening to. Um, the other thing I was going to say, over, over the last uh, day or so, there's been discussion around Kevin Andrews, who's the other co-chair, and who wrote a book where he was um, talking about the, the fact that divorce is really challenging Western civilization. So someone else who's coming into that inquiry with very strong personal views. I would have thought Western civilization had slightly stronger challenges than divorce. Climate change may be one of them. Yeah, you might think so. <laughs> so that was one issue I was looking at. The other, of course, and I think you'll say something about this, Martin, is the Supreme Court ruling in the UK um, count on yep. <laughs> around um, Boris Johnson's suspension of parliament. And so what I was reflecting on is not so much that ruling, but the fact that Prime Minister Johnson felt that it was appropriate for him to suspend Parliament. And the third issue that I was looking at and thinking about um, is the the discussions that have been happening around the UN General Assembly and particularly the UN climate change, um, the, the, the meetings around climate change. 
And the fact that our own Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and President Donald Trump decided that they didn't need to attend that event. And of course, they've both been very outspoken against the climate change agenda. So three very different things. What might they have in common? Well, I think what we see in each of those three things is the kind of rise of individuals with their own personal agenda, feeling that it is okay for them to push that agenda, regardless of processes, regardless of institutions, um, and the, the challenges and the dangers that that brings to democracy. It's kind of another example of the rise of populism. So you know, we're thinking about future pods. Maybe we need to look at institutions and processes and how we reinvent them when trust in those institutions and processes have been so eroded in recent times. Um, but maybe the ruling from the Supreme Court in the UK is an example of processes working. Uh, look, I think I think they were three really uh, significant things, and you're and you're absolutely right to kind of draw them together in the way that you did. I want to pick up on a couple of those things, but the first thing I want to pick up on, I will come back to the Supreme Court ruling because obviously I want my uh, moment of ranting uh, about Brexit. I'm con- contractually obliged at this stage to do so on the podcast. Each oh, we week. know you can't resist. I can't. I can't <laughs> resist it. But actually, I want to. Um, Take the opportunity because you talked about uh, climate change there, and I want to take the opportunity to flag up something really exciting for our listeners, which is on the 17th of October, uh, Sharon and I are going to be hosting a live event. It's part of the Great Green Debate, which is organised by the ANU Learning Communities team here at the Australian National University. And it's on the topic, should Australia declare a climate emergency? There's some great speakers lined up, and this will be our very first ever, essentially, live policy forum pod. So if you are in Canberra, if you've got any interest in this topic, and you absolutely should have an interest in this topic, please do get yourself along. It's going to be on 17th of October at 7pm in the Canberra Precinct here at the ANU. And we will leave details of this in the uh, description to the pod. And we're no doubt going to be talking about it a bit more over weeks to come. Are you looking forward to that event, Sharon? I am really looking forward to this event. I think it's going to be so exciting. A little bit nervous. I mean, you know, we, we do have the edit button when we're in the cupboard, but when we're out in the big wide world, you know, there's no edit button. So. And, and we've got the security of this nice, cosy little cupboard and all the times that I swear on uh, the microphone can be edited out. Our listeners are going to get the full breadth of your Brexit rants. <laughs> That's a word of warning to listeners. I will try and contain myself on the 17th of October and not draw a link between uh, whether Australia should declare a climate emergency and Brexit. But for now, let me let me touch on Brexit briefly because we're recording this on Wednesday morning and we're recording it essentially the day after the historic ruling. And I, I, I use that word cautiously in the Supreme Court in the UK yesterday where Lady Hale handed down the unanimous verdict of 11 of the uh, the country's most senior judges into the prorogation of uh, UK parliament and i would I, I i'm not going to talk too much about brexit but what i will say is that i thought it was a uh, really strong reassertion of democratic principles, Sharon, because if you read over uh, the judgment that was prepared by the judges, it is very clear, it's very well written, and it asserts very clearly what the distinction is 
in the roles between uh, law, between parliament and between the executive. And we've seen so much blurring of that uh, in the UK over the last year or two. It was quite refreshing to see, okay, some very clear lines in the sand drawn. It's I don't expect that that ruling is going to have a huge impact on Brexit. Uh, in terms of the bigger issues that are playing out, but certainly in terms of um, getting rid of some of that blurring of the boundaries. It was a very kind of useful intervention and quite a refreshing one from a democratic point of view, I think. Look, I think it was a really great ruling. And and as you say, the the, the um, documentation of that is, is really powerful. And I think the point that I made about this rise of populism, you know, and, and the fact that Boris Johnson felt he could just make that ruling, you know, in an arbitrary and unilateral way to suspend parliament um, is is very disturbing to democracy. I think alongside all of that rise of populism, we've had real challenges to institutions. You know, if you think in the Australian context, the Banking Royal Commission, the Royal Commission into Institutional uh, Child Sexual Abuse, um, we're now seeing the, the uh, Royal Commission into Ageing. Um, you know, again and again, we're seeing how institutions have let people down. But there are these real um, points of hope on the horizon. I think this ruling is one of them. It's a beautiful articulation, as you say, of the distinction between the law, the parliament, um, and the separation of, of powers. Um, and that's an important thing. So I think maybe we can put a link to that um, ruling so that our listeners can can have a list, have a read of it. Yeah. Because we, I think this really matters. We absolutely will. And I, w- I would recommend um, our listeners do give it a read. It's 25 pages, but it's well worth uh, your time in doing so. So listeners, you've heard what Sharon and I were interested in this week, but we'd love to get your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are apps policy forum you can shoot us an email podcast at policyforum.net or the very best way to join the conversation is through our facebook podcast group just type in policy forum pod into the search bar on facebook and you will find us there now this week we are going to take a look at a issue that affects many people mental health policy Despite greater openness about mental health, the stigma attached to, for example, depression and anxiety disorders has long hampered effective policy action. And at this rate, the problems are starting to outrun the solutions. According to the OECD, mental health problems are one of the greatest and fastest growing categories of diseases in the world. We've got campaigns like Are You OK Day and uh, NGOs like Beyond Blue, which have gained some momentum over the years and done a lot of really valuable work, but policy still has a long way to go. Since the introduction of the 1992 National Mental Health Strategy, policy approaches have been more openly debated and revised to meet the increasing need for better access to mental health services, but they often fall short of addressing the needs of their most vulnerable. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who suffer disproportionately compared to non-Indigenous Australians are especially in need of better access. So this is an incredibly important discussion. It's one that probably doesn't get enough attention. Um, We recorded this discussion a little earlier. So Martin and I know what the discussion that we're about to listen to holds. It is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly moving. And I've got to say, Martin, I came away from this discussion with a really deep sense of anger. (laughs) 
um, you know, we do here in, in this discussion where some of the solutions lie, how we can start to be making progress. Um, so it's not as though we have no idea of what the solutions might be. Um, but as we will hear, often those who are in a position to make decisions are not listening to those solutions. So this is a discussion that is well worth listening to um, and I think well worth re-listening to and reflecting on. We've got an incredibly knowledgeable and insightful panel to, to talk these through these issues with us. Uh, we have Dr Sebastian Rosenberg. Sebastian is a research fellow right here at the ANU at our Research School of Population Health. He spent 16 years working as a public servant, you know, on, on the front line of thinking about policy. So he knows this stuff. He really knows this stuff. And he's got some incredible insights about what really needs to happen. Um, he's also been Deputy CEO of the Mental Health Council of Australia. He was in that role um, for a number of years. And so this is someone who's, who's incredibly knowledgeable. The second um, panellist that we have today is Dr. Stuart Sutherland, also from our very own ANU. Stuart is in the College of Health and Medicine. He was born and raised in Wellington in New South Wales, which is the heart of Wiradjuri country, and he's worked on Indigenous health issues for over a decade. And again, just phenomenal insights. Um, our third panellist um, is Julie Tongs. Julie is CEO of Wananga Nimitcha. Aboriginal Health and Community Services, which is based here in the ACT. She's worked for over 30 years um, on a range of issues around Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander affairs. She is an incredible leader, thinker and activist. She's the recipient of a number of awards, um, including ACT Indigenous Person of the Year in 2012. And I think our listeners will will appreciate after they've heard her talk just why she has received so many awards and why we should be listening to her. It really is a great lineup of guests and it is a r riveting discussion like you, like you, Sharon. I came away feeling quite angry, I think, about, uh, about our failures to address the very significant issues in this space. But I'll leave it to you listeners to give it a listen and let us know your thoughts about it. Now, before we get started with this discussion, I would like to issue a warning, particularly to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, that this podcast will include discussion of people who have died. And some people might find the content of this episode distressing. If you or your loved ones are struggling with mental health, please know that there is help. You can reach out to Lifeline Australia's Crisis Support at 131114. That's 131114. And they're accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we will repeat those details at the end of the podcast. But for now, let's have a listen to that discussion. Julie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Stuart, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. And Sebastian, welcome to you. Thanks very much. Last year, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, or the ABS, estimated that 45% of Australian adults had experienced a mental health problem in their lifetime, and 20% had experienced problems in the last year. 
It's also estimated that 3,128 people died in this country because of intentional self-harm in 2017. So pretty disturbing figures. Um, and the mental health problems were presumably related to 94.2% of those deaths. So we've got a, a very grim picture. I just wanted to, to ask you all and, and ask you all um, in turn to start with, um, perhaps beginning with you, Julie, are mental health problems becoming more prevalent in Australia? Absolutely they are, and especially um, in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And we see many Aboriginal people with mental illness at Wanunga. We have 1,860 with a diagnosed mental illness. Stuart, what's your your experience of whether this is is becoming worse and how it's playing out? Well, it's obvious it's becoming worse and there's many factors. Um, For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we haven't, um, we've got transgenerational trauma. We still have people living from the effects of forced separation. Um, We still have, in our health system, we still have institutional racism Mm. um, and then compounded by the current climate and climate change where we know many people are now stressed, um, and that's long-term, but even in the drought, um, people are becoming more stressed just situationally uh, because of that. So, yeah, it is becoming worse. So we want to spend some time kind of pulling apart each of those issues that that you've raised um, and going into some detailed discussion of those issues. But, Sebastian, just broadly, is enough being done from a policy perspective to address mental health problems amongst Australians today? So the short answer is uh, we're probably doing too much from a policy perspective. What we're not doing enough is from an implementation perspective. I just wanted to mention briefly, you asked the others about the um, prevalence, if you like. Uh, it's probably worth just mentioning that we've only actually had two surveys of mental health and well-being. One was in 1997 and one was in 2007. And I guess from my point of view as a policy person, the thing I would say is that for such a an issue of colossal importance, both uh, personally and in communities and indeed economically, we know very little about uh, mental health and mental illness in Australia. And so I think it really uh, is something that uh, we we have a responsibility to to study more and to understand more so that we can start to tailor our our approaches better and start to think about how to spend our money better. Because, to get to your question, Sharon, uh, yeah, we have had lots of policies. Um, we've got more policies than you can poke a stick at. Um, so we have, at the moment, the fifth mental health plan. We've had five. Um, we have also have, uh, of course, plans at each of the jurisdictional levels that mirror those that, that national plan. So you could multiply that by eight. Oh, nine governments, of course. And then you could cross out the word mental health and put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and you could have nine more of those. And then you could put suicide prevention, you have nine more plans there, policies and so on. The real issue is that we have got and we have had in Australia, I think, uh, a palpable failure to uh, implement the um, repeated recommendations of these policies and of inquiries uh, over a long period of time, which has meant that... Um, you know, despite the fact that Australia was one of the first countries in the world to have a national mental health plan in 1992, in fact, uh, the mental health share of overall health budget has gone up in that period by 0.16%. So we're really not um, addressing the issue in a serious way. 
Can I just pick up on that, Sebastian? Who is responsible for that failure of implementation? Well, I think there's there's a, a, a I mean, it's, it's perhaps pointless to, to to talk about you know blame and so on, and that's maybe not a not a, a healthy way to proceed. What I think we can say is that uh, mental health um, perhaps um, typifies or exemplifies a better word. I'm sorry, exemplifies the level of disconnect which exists in the way we approach um, services and systems because, and Julie and Stuart will probably talk about this a lot more eloquently than me, when it comes to mental health, particularly, for, say, for some communities like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, there's no point just looking at, at the part of the body above your shoulders. <laughs> you know, you need to be thinking about um, the person in context and that and governments are are bad at dealing with context. Governments are dealing with silos. Commonwealth and state governments have split responsibilities for funding between different services and between different systems, um, which means that um, there are people often talk, the classic uh, um, phrase which is used is that people have fallen between the gaps. Mm. But in fact, I would suggest, and in a broad scale, um, you have a, 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 the state government that funds acute care, and you have the federal government that funds Medicare and no, nobody really funds and is responsible for any services in between. So um, with regards to acute care, you've got to be really, really sick now in order to qualify for a hospital admission because um, beds are scarce, services are scarce, staff are scarce. And of course, um, with regards to Medicare, I think there'd be many people who'd be being helped by the Better Access Program, for example. Uh, but if your problem is too complicated for six or ten sessions of cognitive behavioural therapy with a psychologist, then there is almost nowhere for you to go afterwards, which gives rise to Pat McGorry's term, you know, the, the missing middle and so on. So um, I would suggest that, you know, who's to blame? There is a, a lack of uh, systemic consideration of what 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 is mental illness and how many different mental illnesses there are and how many different circumstances there are and how mental illness affects your employment and your education and your housing and your social inclusion in addition to your health, physical health. Uh, so that's the, the first thing. And then there are the splits that separate, as I say, into silos uh, between different governments and so on. So we're, we're ripe for these gaps to emerge. Sebastian mentioned... Um the the number of plans that we have, and Sebastian referred to the mental health plans, um, and then you said you would increase that number again if you insert Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, you'd increase it again if you include suicide. Um, Julie, from, from your point of view, is one of the problems with the plans that we have that we're not joining the dots, that the plans are separate from one another and not speaking to one another, or are they in some way integrated? Uh, look, I've got a real problem with plans. We've got more plans than, you know, the National Library. And uh, the thing for me is that we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. We had the National Aboriginal Health Strategy. We had the Bringing Them Home Report. All the recommendations, if they'd have been implemented, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now. I don't know how many more plans that we need to have. We need action on the ground. And when I say that with Wenunga, the service that I run here in Canberra, 
we have 1,860 clients with a diagnosed mental illness, so that's schizophrenia, um, bipolar, and all those um, mental illnesses that have a definition. But then we've got another and probably more people with personality disorders, but that's not a classified mental illness. And a lot of this comes from the historical trauma. We've got prisons full of people with mental illness. The substance is secondary. The substance is... The the mental health is the cause and the substance is the symptom. So we, we see people as a whole at Wanunga. We don't see body parts. We've set, had to set up a second reception so that we can care, better care for our mental health clients because they not only have a mental illness, they've got multiple other chronic diseases. Mm. So their diabetes, their heart, all of those other things. And so if their di- um, mental health isn't in control, then they've got no insight into their physical well-being. Mm. So we do do things differently. We don't silo or pigeonhole people. We work with the whole person. And we have psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health nurse, drug and alcohol nurse, GPs, um, midwives, nurses, and the backbone of the service are the Aboriginal workers. So we have drug and alcohol workers, mental health workers, and we call it a social health team. And they case manage the client because they not only have a mental illness, they've also got child protection issues, they've got um, other social issues, they might have probation and parole issues, So, and they need to go to court. So we support them through the whole system. But we do as much as we can at the service because when we try to refer out, we hit a wall. And I think here in Canberra, everything's geared to the middle. And so the disadvantaged are the forgotten people and not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander vulnerable people but also other people from other cultures. Julia, you, you said that you hit a wall when you try to refer people out and that part of that is that services are targeted to the middle. But how else do you see that wall playing out, you know, and how do we start to pull that wall down so that I think that, th- um, th- there are options? We've got to deal with the racism. Yeah. There's still a lot of um, racism in the services. And also, we actually have been seeing, Wanunga's been around for 31 years, and I've been there as a CEO for 22. We've always had a lot of people, even before we had good data and good systems. We knew that we had a big mental health um, cohort here in the ACT and also intravenous drug use. So for us, it's been... A journey where we don't just run to the government and say, or if there's funding out for a particular disease or whatever, if that's not what's having the biggest impact on our clients, we don't go for that funding. But the the problem is that we've built our services around client need. So we're a client-centric service. It's all about our clients and what they need. So we wrap the services around the client rather than, you know, have all these services sitting at the table and nobody knows who's doing what. By doing the way that doing it the way that we do it, we know exactly what services are the right fit. But the barrier is when we try to refer out, that's where we hit the wall. Stuart, when Julie said that racism is at the heart of this, you said yes. Yeah. Um, 
how is racism playing out? I think well, we can probably all imagine this, but how is it playing out to stop people getting the care and support they need? Yeah, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan has racism in its, in its um, opening paragraph. And institutional racism is key to getting better health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. If Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, or any person for that matter, doesn't feel comfortable to go to a service, they just won't go. Mm. Um, and we also, that's, that's the first point. The other point, there's many points for racism. Um, but the other one is that we know that people who have continually, are continually vilified that, that uh, physical and mental health illnesses start to manifest. And so if you already have a mental health illness or problem, as Julie said, not all of them are diagnosed or diagnosable under the DSM, then that's exacerbated and then other health problems will come. So there's now research, for example, on diabetes and kidney disease about stress. And it's not, um, we used to think it was lifestyle choices, so food, lack of exercise, those sorts of things. There's now a body of evidence that says that contributes, but stress um, and trauma are also contributing. So for Aboriginal people who are situated fairly in the centre of that, and then you've got racism on top of it, we have we have limited options. And then compounded by so many places, it's not, you know, you go to uh, Wanunga or any Aboriginal medical service where the medical system is not at the pinnacle, the other services are around you, as Julie said, you go to a Western system and your the focus is the medical officer. And they're, without doing a disservice to um, doctors, they're, they're great, but it's almost enforced on you what they want you to do as opposed to recommendations and supports. Mm. And so, yeah, so racism is a huge problem within the mental health sector. I was just going to say, uh, if I might to add to that, um, so I think there's still issues around stigma uh, overall in relation to mental health and help seeking. Uh, and I think that that would be accentuated by uh, issues of racism, um, so they would compound. But what I wanted to mention in particular was that, because um, you were talking about you know um, what might be done to break down some of the barriers. And I think, again, you know, we know enough about the way mental health manifests to start to answer some of those questions. The, the frustration for someone like me anyway is that we, we don't respond. So let me give you an example. I think our health system, which is generally well, probably every year politicians will get out to pat themselves on the back about how our health system is the first or second or third best in the world. And what's really important to mention here, because often that's drawing on evidence from something, say, like the Commonwealth Fund analysis of of white Western um, health systems from places like Canada and so on and so on, is that those measures uh, don't include mental health. If you include mental health, you would find that Australia's performance worldwide is middle ranking at best, middle to lower ranking. But what's important is that um, our health system in order to get to that high ranking, I think is pretty well set up to deal with the needs of older people and the needs of uh, young babies. And so we are we're pretty good at responding at that level. Um, however, unfortunately, uh, mental health is a young person's problem. It, 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 75% of mental illness manifests before the age of 25. And so and I think 50% before the age of 14. 
And so really what you're saying is how well organised is our health service? And taking a bear in mind um, Stuart's discussion about the limitations of what we call, what we deem to be a, a health service, but how well geared up is the health service to respond to the needs of young people? Now, in those surveys of mental health and well-being I was talking about before, 1997, 2007, they asked some fairly rudimentary questions about if you had a mental health problem last year, did did you get any help for that problem? And what they found was that for young men in particular, under the age of 25, only 13% of those young men who said they had a mental illness in the preceding 12 months that needed help got any help. So on that basis, someone like me would suggest that our health system, our mental health system, either you could say more generously fails to attract young people into care, or I would go as far as to say repels Mm. young people from seeking care. Now, if you then place that young person in a context of um, being part of um, an Aboriginal community, being part of an LGBTQI community, being part of a rural community. You start placing additional uh, factors and stressors which compound that problem. So I think, uh, you know, we know enough to start responding intelligently, yet we are yet to do so. Sebastian, can I stay with you here? Is spending an issue here? I mean, because according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, government and non-government bodies in Australia spent around $9 billion in 2015 on mental health-related services, uh, and that equates to around $373 per person. Are we actually spending enough on mental health services? Could greater investment in mental health services address some of the issues that you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean... The, the the shorthand way of describing this is that the, one of the other things the AIHW does, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare does, is uh, also look at the the uh, burden of disease that uh, is represented by uh, different types of problems. Mental illness represents about 12% of the burden of disease, but it gets about 7% of the budget. So look, that gap doesn't explain everything, but I think it explains a lot. And what I think is really... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Critical here, as I've mentioned at the start, is that nothing has really changed. There have been a couple of times of moments, as there is in in responding to most health problems, (laughs) a couple of moments of sunshine, if you like, where mental health has its moment in the sun and governments feel the need to respond. And one of the, 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 the big ones perhaps was when the Council of Australian Governments developed a national action plan in 2006 uh, that ran until 2011, and they put uh, money that ended in a B rather than an M, a billions rather than a millions, and that was a significant moment. But even then, as I say, overall, uh, in 1992-93, when the National Mental Health Strategy began, uh, mental health share of the health budget was 7.25%. 
In 2016-17, it was 7.41%. So there's been palpably no real sustained increase in the resources required. But I think it's just really important. I want to emphasize this as well. And I think this is a point that, that Julian Stewart was sort of making as well. There's really not a lot of point in putting more money into failed systems, mm-hmm. you know, just into yeah. another medical officer or another um, another whatever. We really have to be thinking about uh, what is the nature of mental health and mental illness? Uh, who is most at risk? Who has uh, problems? How can they be um, assisted? Where do they go for help? Who, tr- who do they trust? Um, these are basic questions in my mind which, you know, populate more uh, intelligent responses in other areas of healthcare to do with, say, cancer or other areas where there are pathways that people can follow, that health professionals can follow, that families can follow, where they can uh, have some degree of control and understanding and transparency about what is necessary. In mental health, largely those pathways don't exist. People, I still find it remarkable that the most thing, common thing, I think, is that people feel lost. They don't know enough about the problem. They don't know where to go for help. Uh, they don't know what to do if they find some help and it doesn't work. They don't know what happens next. Uh, people are very vulnerable. And I would just finish by saying, in my mind, what is really critical here is, that, you know, if, if in my right hand is acute care and in my left hand is primary care, there's almost nothing in the middle. And here in particular, I'm thinking about the range of community mental health services, many of which um, would combine clinical care with psychosocial care. Often those services might be best organised and arranged by non-government organisations. And in in this gap, there is almost no funding. So the funding that does go, goes to supporting more beds in hospitals that fill and then empty and then fill and then empty and then fill. And to uh, the, you know services like those provided by psychologists, which I think are helpful for some people, and I think uh, not so helpful for others. Can I just say, as a service provider, the rubber never hits the ground. There's always another level of bureaucracy. So all the royal commissions, you know, I don't know how many more royal commissions we need. We know what works in our community. We know what the needs of our community are. We should be able to sit down with government and co-design our performance indicators and have the funding. We've got to fund need, not where you live. So it's not about, you know, the North Shore or wherever. It's about the need of the people to make sure that they get the services to be able to manage their mental illness. And I've had my own personal experience with mental illness. I've had a son that passed away 10 years ago. He was um, an interstate truck driver and he'd used speed over the years. So, um, but he'd become very unwell and uh, he he saw the psychiatrist at Wanunga and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. At first we thought it was drug-induced psychosis. That was so challenging, and even for me as the CEO of Wanunga, having to get the police to come when I couldn't get the mental health crisis team to come because he needed to be in hospital. Nobody was listening to me, and I'd have to get our doctor, Dr Pete at the time, to ring the crisis team 
And when they didn't come, we'd have to ring the police because he was so unwell. I followed him to the service station. He was playing chicken with other cars, you know, like that's how unwell he was. And yet we couldn't get what we needed. Now, for me, that's just, and that's me and I'm the CEO of Wenunga and I had the supports behind me with the psychiatrist and the doctor saying he needs to be in hospital. He's really unwell. And on top of that, he had diabetes. So he had no insight into his mental health or his diabetes. And when he was on um, an order that he had to have his depot injections, as soon as he'd come off the order, he'd get really unwell again. And um, the medication is problematic as well because it makes people gain a lot of weight. And so when you've got diabetes and other chronic illnesses, it actually compounds that. And my son died from uncontrolled diabetes. So the system failed him. And even because he had children in his care, my grandchildren, I had to, I read my grandchildren. And um, even because there was an order that he couldn't come to my house while I had the kids. You know, it's just not right. The whole system's just not right. And there's a lot of families, Aboriginal families out there like me, that really, really struggle and that find it really, really difficult to access the services in a timely manner. And, you know, I think that if he'd have had the proper care and support, then he'd still be here now. So that's just, you know, I'm sharing my personal story here. But as I said, there's a lot of Aboriginal families out there like me. But on the death certificate, it didn't say that he had schizophrenia. It identified his uncontrolled diabetes. And I think that's problematic too, because if we want to get a true picture, you know, around, I think people don't understand that it was his schizophrenia Mm. that caused him to um, not be able to control his his diabetes. Mm. Julie, I'm so sorry to hear your story. I cannot imagine what it's like to experience that. And I can't imagine how hard it is to share that story. But I think it's so powerful that you do because as you said, if you can't yeah. get access, where does that leave other people who Absolutely. who who don't know the system? Mm. And it speaks so powerfully to the total breakdown of all the systems mm. that should be there to support people. And I think it takes us to um you know, something that Sebastian was saying. You you talked about what we might say is intersectionality, you know, the the combination of a whole range of social characteristics that make people particularly at risk. But the the factor that again and again comes out as putting people at risk is being Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. Um, In 2013, there was a survey that showed that one in three Indigenous people in Australia experienced high to very high levels of psychological distress, uh, most likely associated with mental health problems, compared with one in eight non-Indigenous Australians. So we see that gap just in those figures. And according to the ABS in 2017, Indigenous Australians were more than twice as likely to die by suicide than non-Indigenous Australians in most states, and that's a damning figure. Stuart, bring you back in. 
We've talked about the plans and the plans all refer to this. What do we start to do on the ground? So if you had Scott Morrison in this small room, what's the first piece of advice that you would give to him to start to address this scandal of Indigenous people um, being so much more at risk because of the systems we have in place? There's a number of things, but firstly, I want to uh, clarify a point of language, which is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within themselves are not more prone to mental illness or ill health. It's the compounding factors of, if I want to be nice, I'd call it colonisation. If I don't, I'd call it invasion. Mm. But it's not our race that is prone to it. It is the circumstances. um, First of all, I'd tell him that and I'd tell him to start writing these policies in that language. Um, because even you know, looking up various different policies for today's discussion, they all put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander in the negative. You know, low numbers of employment, overcrowding. They put all these stats up about social determinants that paint a very negative picture of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as opposed to speaking, as opposed to the way that they, they talk about non-Indigenous people. Um, so that's the first thing I think we need to do is completely change the language that we write these things up. Um, for example, uh, when we're talking about the workforce, there's, uh, what was it, 4.7 million people with a diagnosed mental health um, condition. There's roughly 50,000 health professionals to deal with that. And the way that the AHAW uh, pulled those disciplines apart was Psychiatrist, mental health nurses, and psychologist. We have a huge workforce of Aboriginal health workers. We have a huge workforce of social workers. They all have a role to play in mental health, yet they're not talked about at all in these things. So I think language, I think we need to stop siloing it. Let's put it, I mean, we've talked about racism and how Aboriginal people won't go to to a, a mainstream service. We've talked about the way that AMSs wrap people in a, in around their services needed, um, but those should be able to be worked out in one single policy, not keeping dividing it across many. So, I think we need to do that. And the other thing I think we need to do is focus our spending, because it seems to me that we have a scattergun approach to spending um, instead of a target approach. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, we were talking about this. I'm going to say 20 years ago, um, where government funds pilot programs. They start to work and they defund them and we go on to funding another pilot program. Why aren't we doing some sort of project to look at what has worked, as Julie said, and come together and discuss a plan for the future and settle on it and give it some time to actually make some inroads? Um, So they're all the things I'd tell Scott. Can I just say... We always get the pilot, but we never get the plane. We we never get it off the ground. So, you know, that's the story of what happens in Aboriginal community. We're always um, the pilot, and uh, it's very frustrating. I just think uh, one of the other things, um, Sharon, is, and I, I don't have, uh, I can't call up the statistic, I'm afraid. What I can call up is... Uh, a, co- a colleague I've done a bit of work with, Jerry Georgiados from the National um, Incident Response uh, Team, who who indicated to me that 
that as far as he understood, um, suicide was uh, a significant issue in the Aboriginal community, but specifically in um, non-urban areas. So in urban areas, the rate of suicide amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is lower than the general community. So uh, I think what what it, what it uh, s- suggests is that, again, it's not really helpful just to talk about um, suicide or mental health. We, you know, we have to really start to segment and, and understand, oh, I think perhaps what Stuart's saying, we, it's no, no use just using a scattergun. We actually need to be clearer in our language about what it is we're, we're, we're trying to, uh, we're perceiving as a problem, uh, how it manifests and how we're planning to address it. And at the moment, those things are rather obscure. Uh, so at the start of the um, show, you talked about uh, just over 3,000 suicide deaths. Those problems, those figures are often pretty, uh, you know, uh, problematic and they take a while f- to be verified and, and so on. And and obviously the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander rate of suicide is a big issue in that, in that uh, context. However, for me, perhaps what's more important or at least as important is the number of attempted suicides. Uh, and, you know, this is a number that is not collected. So it's all very well sort of accounting for people once they have died. I would prefer to do something while they were still alive. Mm. Now, we do not collect data on attempts. There are other countries that are doing things smarter. You know, New Zealand is using police call-out information in order to understand trends and changes. And, of course, they have a significant issue with uh, Maori and Pacifica populations there. But they're using a range of data to build a fuller picture of the nature of the problems they're attempting to address. We seem to be operating with a, a, a paucity of funding and a paucity of data. Sebastian, just to, to stay with you for a moment, um, and on this this issue of suicide and suicide attempts, one of the horrifying things in Australia that we know from the the scarce data that we do have is that amongst the the children and young people who take their own lives, the proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who suicide is much higher. And suicide is always a tragedy. But when we're talking about children under 17 or under 12, it becomes almost unimaginable. You commented earlier on the fact that services are not well designed for the young. Mm. How do we start to redesign those services for young people and for young children who are beyond the early childhood phase where there is a policy focus, but Mm -hmm. primary school, high school age children Mm -hmm. who are clearly struggling with a whole range of issues? And how do we do that in a way that is sensitive to the needs of Indigenous children? I think that's a great question. I think in in relation to Indigenous kids in particular, I defer to, to Stuart and, and, and Julie to provide a, a bit more of a response. But what I would say is that there is what's really critical here, I think, uh, is uh, not to separate, again, the head from the rest of the body and indeed the community. And so what you'll find with um, childhood mental health issues is that, uh, again, they often relate to circumstances in the family. And, you know, going back to the issue of, uh, of rates of access to care, if you've got young men who are not in care, those young men, uh, 
grow up to become employees and they grow up to become partners and fathers and so on. So they're, they're, the issue really is about the uh, support that is provided to families who are in, then in a position to grow uh, healthy children. <laughs> and so, again, separating out um, and saying, oh, well, this child has got a, a real, has got a problem and we're going to now focus, you know, professional attention on this child. I think it's actually could be, could be quite dangerous. And I know that that's been a significant issue, for example, in critiques of, say, American responses to mental illness, where you will have rates of diagnosis being very high and then stigmatization of young children as having, you know, lifelong disorders of things, when in fact, they may well have quite complicated issues, which which are the result of a range of family circumstances that, that go much more towards social determinants, that'll be to do with the way the parents relate to do with levels of employment and stability of housing and so on. So uh, what I think I would do in, in a nutshell would be to uh, reconfigure, rethink the way we respond. to. First of all, we need to actually prioritise it because it, it is not prioritised at all. As I say, if you look at the rates of spending on Medicare, it, it is that group of, of kids that are really missing out. Uh, you know, uh, the vast majority of our spending is is directed towards older people, as I mentioned previously. So it, it is a, a service and a funding gap. But what's what underpins this is there's been a lack of attention to um, uh, um, a, a more proper response to the need, emerging needs of young people with mental health as a as a family related problem. And that's because of the issues we've talked about before. That if you start to do that, it really uh, means you need to be thinking more broadly than many government agencies have found it themselves able to do so. They prefer to work in silos and so on, whereas the issues that you're raising about placing a child more fully and responding to the needs of a child mean that you're going to need to be dealing with their education, uh, their housing, their uh, parents' employment, their parents' health and welfare. It's a whole range of, of issues that need to be dealt with. So you start then talking about responses in in places in communities, in families, rather than uh, as a, an ind individual interaction between a patient and a health professional. It's a much more challenging response. We do have whole families that are affected. So it's not just one person in the family. Mm. And, you know, people say um, about education and housing and all those things. Well, you can't get a good education if your parents can't get out of bed because they're depressed their mental illness is out of control. Mm. You know, the kids aren't getting fed. Mm. You know, child protection are involved or dad's in jail. You know, like 25% of the prison population here in the ACT are Aboriginal people. So, you know, like we need to look at it as a whole family. And the thing is for us is that a lot of these families don't even have transport and we don't have the best transport system here in the ACT. So the thing that Wenunga does is go out, pick them up, take them to where they need to go if they're a client. And that's how we wrap. If they've got to go to probation and parole, we take them to probation and parole. We've got a very good relationship with the courts. They see my staff in the court every day supporting clients. And But it is a family. Um, we have to address all of those issues. But we're never going to get... Um, 
we're going to lose another generation of of young people, Aboriginal people, if we don't start to do things differently. And we all know that the best solution is to resource Aboriginal medical services or Aboriginal community-controlled health services to respond to the need instead of, you know, Headspace and all of those other services. They're great services, but our clients won't go there. And it's often with Aboriginal people, it's that fear of the unknown. But it's also, you've got to be well enough to be able to get the kids there in the first place. And if people aren't well, then everything starts to go downhill. And before you know it, there's all these, it's compounded by all the other social determinants. So we're not just addressing people's mental health or, or physical well-being, but it's all the, you know, child protection, prison, all of those other things that come into play. I think we at Wanunga now are going to start to put more effort into FASD, so um, fetal alcohol syndrome, because alcohol has been a huge factor for Aboriginal people. Mm. And uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of Aboriginal people out there that have no, are our undiagnosed FASD. We have to respond down here, and we've got some really good programs now at Wanunga for first-time mothers and for vulnerable families. So, But we've still got to work with what we've got in the middle, and that's a whole lot of dysfunction. And drugs don't discriminate. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. And the problem is that rather than acknowledge or ask for help, for a mental illness, people self-medicate and they self-medicate in different ways. It could be with alcohol, it can be with drugs, it can be with prescription drugs. Then that creates another level of service delivery or because until we get to the root cause, what what's caused is we're never going to change anything. All we're doing is masking the problem. And so we really are committed to working to try and overcome some of these barriers, and if we can't do it in Canberra, how the hell can anybody else do it in the country? This has been uh, an incredible and very powerful discussion. I thank you all for sharing your expertise and insights and thoughts with us, but we do need to draw it to a close. And I want to draw it to a close, if I can, on a note of some positivity. We have, the podcast has a lot of policymakers listening to this, and I'd like to pick your brains individually and say, you know, for any policymakers that are listening to this, what is the one thing that they could do that would affect the greatest change on some of the issues that we've talked about here today? If you could sort of wave a magic wand and have your one policy wish implemented, perhaps, Stuart, if I can start with you. I don't have one, but I think for me and policymakers is to listen and act on what we're saying because there are many, many roundtables, many, many workshops, many whatever that we're called to, um, working groups, committees. And to my mind, we've been saying the same thing for a long time and it's not being heard. So for me, it's un it's, it's hearing what we have to say. So that comes back to that sort of plan fatigue that you were talking about earlier there, Julie. So what would be your one thing that you would like policymakers to do that would affect the greatest change? I agree with um, Stuart. I, people come, you know, 
they asked me to be on every committee here in Canberra <laughs> because we do everything. So, and I'm one person and I can't be. The thing for me is they need to hear what we're saying, you know. They come with their own preconceived ideas of what we need. We know what we need. If you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. And finally over to you, Sebastian. I've got, I got three. <laughs> I know I'm bad. So, look, the first thing I just want to mention is that, you know, I think the point that Julie raised is really important and I think really positive. It's a really positive thing. It's an irony and I was just talking to Julie outside about how, you know, Aboriginal medical services and, and places like Wananga actually offer a template of holistic response to social and emotional well-being that um, mainstream services could really learn from and that's because um, they do everything they possibly can to avoid just referring people on. They take responsibility for their communities and for trying to deal with the range of issues that people in those communities face. They don't just deal with the head or with the, the, the kidney or the liver or the, or the unemployment or the housing. They try to deal with the, the, all of the person. So I would suggest that, you know, again, we've got models which can be built on for the general community. That's the first one. Second one is the thing I would really like um, in that context, if you like, I would really like to see happen in mental health is a concerted effort by all governments and and others to really focus and agree that wherever possible, it would be ideal for people with mental illness to be treated outside of hospital. Mm. So um, alternatives to hospitalisation are few. And so I would like to see, I don't know what we want to call it, like a community mental health strategy or something like that. It is a way of trying to actually prioritise non-hospital care over other sorts of care. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing I would say is that there are um, quite a few jurisdictions that have got much more sophisticated approaches to actually listening to consumers and carers. Um, Places like New Zealand have real-time feedback from consumers and carers that are able to actually report on the experience of care they got. Some of those issues might concern um, racism or stigma. Some of them might concern whether they were treated with dignity. Some of them might be concerned with, you know, whether they were helped. So again, one of the critical issues for us in mental health in Australia is that we spend this money, it's it's poorly direct, directed, and we know almost nothing about the impact of the care that has been provided. So my last thing I would say to policymakers is, why don't we move to a more intelligent system where we can actually try to see the impact of the spending and of the care that is provided and then change our response, tailor it on the basis of that feedback to make it even better. But at the moment, we are outcome blind. Sebastian, Stuart, Julie, thank you so much. This has been an incredibly thoughtful and insightful discussion and we appreciate your time and your honesty in talking these issues through. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
Well, welcome back. I hope you got a lot out of that, listeners. A reminder once again that if you or your loved ones are struggling with mental health, there is help that you can access. You can reach out to Lifeline Australia's Crisis Support at 131114, 131114. And as I said at the start of the podcast, they are accessible 24 hours, seven days a week. Sharon, very briefly, some thoughts from you about the discussion we've just heard. Look, I I think that was such an important discussion that we, we have had. I guess to me, I heard some things during that discussion that were quite new to me that made me think quite differently about some of these issues. But these are not issues that should be new to any of us. Um, And so I think the takeaway message for me from that discussion is we have got to start listening to the people who know. And we had three people on the panel today who do know um, and can help to identify what pathways forward might be. And it, it really is time to start listening. And then acting. Listeners, let us know what you thought of the discussion today. Um, we are very keen to get your thoughts and ideas. You can obviously reach us on Twitter, where we are at Policy Forum. You can email us, podcast at policyforum.net. Or best yet, you can reach us on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod. And if you are keen to make a difference in Australia's health policy, then you might want to have a look at Crawford School's Master of Health Policy degree. You can find out more about that at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, uh, no time to go over comments this week, but we will do that next week. But I do want to say a quick hello to some of our new members on our Facebook group and pick up on a couple of their suggestions for future podcasts. It's been really busy on the uh, Facebook group over the last couple of weeks, and that's fantastic to see. Uh, I'm on there. Yulia is on there. Lydia is on there. We're all in there chatting. So if you want to chat to us, please do jump on the on the group and uh, say hello to us. Uh, so hello to the following new pod group members. Uh, Marie Winter, Joel Avcock, Stanley Jonas, Mandy Scottney, Liam Murray, Jamie Luke Spateri and Dipak Rana. It's great to have you join the pod tribe. And special thanks to Marie and Joel who shared their ideas for future podcasts. So Joel wrote uh, that we should do podcasts on uh, politics, institutions, policymaking, labour mobility, and climate change. And Marie wrote sustainable fisheries and the rise of China. What do you think about those, Sharon? Now, Martin, you might think that I would say politics, institutions and policymaking. Um, however, I am going to say sustainable fisheries. Um, I've just come back from some time in the Faroe Islands and in Norway, and um, I'm part of a research project that includes those countries, but also Tasmania. And one of the things that we're looking at is the challenges in small coastal communities around the changes in fishing industries, in the nature of fishing, and the real challenges around sustainable fisheries. So I'm with Marie on this. Let's do something on sustainable fisheries. I think that sounds like a good idea. So watch this space. That may well be a podcast that we make in the future. So huge thanks to Marie and to Joel and everyone who has got in contact with us over the last week. And please do keep those suggestions coming in. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. If you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. We are, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 
Today's episode has been produced by Lydia Kim with writing by Lydia and Yulia Ahrens and post-production by Yulia too. Thanks to everyone who has been involved with this podcast today. We'll be back next week with another episode of Policy Forum Pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.